Okay. Let's turn to Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> Mark chapter 8, we're going to um, read verse 27 through the end of the chapter. And we're, gonna, we're right in the turning point of this book. Here's what, here's what Mark has to say. Jesus and his disciples went into the villages around Caesarea Philippi. <clears throat> and on the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke really plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny him themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. This is it. This is the turning point of the, of the book. The first eight chapters of the book of Mark revolve around the question, who is this guy? Who is Jesus? Who is this guy? The first eight chapters recount story after story of Jesus healing people, teaching. One of the earmarks of his teaching was that it was with authority. He didn't uh, call on someone else's authority. He didn't, he didn't say this person has said or, or I ascribe to this. He said, I say to you. You've heard it said, but I say to you. He took authority on himself and spoke with the authority of God, with God himself. Um, so he's doing all these amazing things and people, he's getting people's attention and, and he's a known figure at this point. And as you're reading, the question that I think has been on all of our minds, what we've been contemplating and the lens that we've been looking through the first half of the book of Mark has been, who is Jesus? Who is he? What's he like? Who is this guy? Um, is he a teacher? Is he a prophet? Um, is he a great spiritual leader? Who is he? Is he, is he an example to follow? This question has been building and building and building and building and building and building. And finally, we get to chapter 8, and Peter just says what we're all thinking. Peter says it. He gets it. This is the first identity statement. He says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. After all Peter has seen, after all he's heard, it's finally starting to sink in. The light comes on and Peter says, you're the Messiah. Now keep in mind, the book of Mark was written by a man named Mark who was probably writing down Peter's testimony of the life of Jesus. So 
This, a lot of scholars call the book of Mark the gospel of Peter because tradition has it, and I think it's pretty reliable church tradition, that at one point John Mark even traveled to Rome where Peter was at and interviewed him specifically about his account of the life of Jesus and that that's what he wrote down. This is really through the perspective and through the lens of the Apostle Peter who was, who was there. And here he says, okay, this is what I was thinking. You've got to be the Messiah. In other words, the math is starting to add up for Peter. He's not just, Jesus is not just a great guy to follow. He's more than that. He's not just a teacher of the law. He is that, but he's more than that. Uh, you're the Christ, now, when Peter uses the word Christ, it's worth us unpacking that a little bit and reminding, what that, reminding ourselves what that meant and what it didn't mean. He's using a word that literally, at its starting point, we know what it means. It's a good place to start. It means anointed one. And that referred to a lot of people in the Bible. You can find a lot of, the, of that word, Christ, or anointed one, about quite a few people. In fact, you can read about it um, in regards to Cyrus in the book of Isaiah. God says to Cyrus, O Cyrus, you are my anointed one. In other words, I've chosen you. He's this military leader from the Persian regime to come and conquer. I've chosen you to do this. So in a sense... Anybody that's chosen for a task by God is in a generic sense an anointed one, but the, the word began to evolve and to take on more meaning and um, for people to expect one anointed one from God, um, specifically following in the line of King David, the anointed one, uh, the word was used of King David. Um, when David was anointed to be king over the, over the people of Israel. He was anointed by God for a certain task. And he, he set an example, a bar of what this anointed one would look like. And prophecy began to unfold in Isaiah and Jeremiah that out of the stump of Jesse, that's David's father, that out of the stump of Jesse would rise a new king, a new leader, a new anointed one, a new Messiah who would be a descendant of King David and would go on conquering in much of the same way. This is why Jesus is the most reticent to take on this title. If you notice, throughout all the Gospels, Jesus, Jesus never uses this term for himself. He never comes right out and says, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, I am the anointed one. Even here in our text, he receives it, but you don't hear him outright say, you're right, Peter, even though Peter was right. Why? Well, because the word went on to mean, in the people's mind, a military leader. Someone who would come in militarily um, with the help of God and a military army to overthrow, overthrow all oppression and become the world leader out of the, out of the nation of Israel. He was, the, he was to be the king to end all kings, the true king. To the Jew, he's the, one that's, he's the one that's going to put everything right in, that's out of whack in the world. He's going to make it all right. He's going to end all evil and injustice, which is true, but the way he would do it was through military might, through uh, political leadership and those types of things. And Jesus was very reticent to take that on, and we're going to see that in this passage. He, takes a, he puts a, a new spin on what the Messiah means. See, Claiming to be the Messiah in and of itself would not be enough to get Jesus killed. Did you know that? Back then, Messiah did not necessarily mean divinity. 
It meant an anointed ruler of some sort. That wouldn't have been enough to get him killed. We'll get into what got Jesus killed when we get to the trial and when we start studying that um, on Good Friday. We'll get into all of those things. But for now, him being the Messiah wouldn't have been that all that controversial to the point that would have gotten, it would have gotten him killed. Um, those kinds of connotations are packed into the word for the Jewish person of the time, this warrior king to end all other battles on the earth. And when Peter says this, Jesus um, accepts it and receives it. He basically says, yes. He implicitly says that. But then immediately in verse 31, he begins to say things that are so horrendous that don't fit with this idea of what Messiah is in verse 31 that Peter feels inspired to rebuke Jesus over this. Jesus says, Basically, yes, Peter, I am the king, but I'm not anything like the king you're expecting. I'm going to redefine what Messiah is going to mean for you, okay? It's hard to find words to describe how important this passage is for us and for Christianity in general. This passage has got to be one of the most bedrock passages that sets Christianity and Jesus apart from any other religious leader and sets Christianity apart from any other world religion. It's so important. I always get really intimidated when I start, when I, when I, when I came to this passage, every time I come to preach it, I've preached this passage several times, I always go, oh man, I feel scared about it because it's so important and so crucial and so critical and I pray that I can get it right. This passage tells us two basic yet really powerful things for us to understand about Jesus, about Christianity. First, Jesus, first of all, says, I am a king, but I'm not a king on a throne. I'm a king on a cross. That's very, very important for us to understand, okay? And we'll unpack all of that. Secondly, he says, and this is what's important for Christianity, if you want to follow me, you have a cross to bear too. Okay. Two basic things about Christianity. Our king is a king that died on a Roman cross. That's very important. And I, the reason we need to, I, I, even right now, it probably seems a little underwhelming for you. Maybe it seems a little, yeah, we get, we know, where, where's the punchline? It's anticlimactic. It's because we're so familiar with it, we, we forget to think about it. We forget to think about how impactful this, this really is. And I hope to renew that in us. Secondly, he says, and this is the part I think we've lost. If you want to follow me, you've got a cross to bear too. This is the way Christians live in a cruciform kind of a way. Okay? I'm a king, but a king on a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to bear your cross too. Okay, so first of all, Jesus says, I'm a king, but not the one you're expecting. So let's explore that a bit. In verse 31... Um, Jesus makes a statement that is perhaps one of the most profound statements to ever be spoken by any human being. I, and I, I know that's really hyperbolic language, but I mean it. I really can't think of another historic figure that has said something so profound of this. In verse 31, it says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Pause right there. Two ideas that have never come together in the history of mankind until this point. Really, you can, you can search uh, ancient literature, you can search uh, 
post-Babylon, post-exilic literature, these two ideas, son of man and suffering, have never been brought together again until this moment when Jesus' lips put these two, boom, ideas together. This changed the world. This statement changed the world. The son of man must suffer. Boom. Picture world history, something spiritual, something changing in that moment, almost like let there be light. This is almost the same kind of a moment. The Son of Man must suffer. I wonder if the spiritual realm felt something shake when he said that. This was Jesus' first, well, let's take it apart. Let's take it apart bit by bit. Let's, let's take this apart. First, let's look at the title, the Son of Man. This, now, unlike the Messiah, this was Jesus' favorite term for himself. This was his preferred identity for himself, the Son of Man. He constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man. I remember when I first came across that as a young Christian, I thought to myself, well, Jesus is stating the obvious. Of course, he's, a son. he's human. Of course, he's a Son of Man. But he's not just saying that. This is a very ancient term that comes from the prophecies of Daniel in the Hebrew scriptures. In Daniel chapter 7, there's a reference to someone who is, quote, like unto the Son of Man, and he's this, the the idea begins to develop that he's this divine figure who comes with the host of heaven to make all things right. He's this divine figure that comes from the throne of God. He's kind of like this divine judge who's going to put all wrongs right on the earth. He's a divine messianic type of a figure. And the fact that Jesus is identifying himself with that idea when he calls himself the son of man is clear from verse 28 where he actually says, and I think this is crazy for anybody to say this, that somebody, that he will return in, quote, in the glory of his father with the holy angels. You see it's something divine going on there. No, no good moral teacher says stuff like that. You understand that? Um, You know, people might say to you, Jesus never explicitly claimed to be God. Well, A, that's not true. But secondly, his implicit implicit claims to divinity are all over. I mean, you can't, you can barely turn a page because he just, the way he thinks, the way he talks. And this is one of those examples. The Son of Man will return with glory and with the glory of his angels. Yeah, just, I mean, who's, what good moral teachers, can I, could I say that to you without you thinking I'm, without you firing me? If I'm teaching and I say, and by the way, one of these days I'm going to come back with, the, uh, with divinity on my side and with the glory of all God's angels. You'll see it. You'd go, time to start searching for a new guy. And rightfully so. I, I love the scene where the, the disciples come back and they're telling Jesus all about the stuff that they've done. They're like, oh my gosh, we, we cast out this demon and, and I, I preached just like you and I, we were able to heal the sick. And they're, it's kind of like I picture in my mind like they're around a campfire telling campfire stories and then Jesus pipes in just out of nowhere out of the blue he pipes in and he says yeah I was there before the world began and I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning can you imagine being around the, what did you just say yeah before time began I was there I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning it's crazy weird okay you win <laughs> your campfire story is the best um but Jesus just, why? Because he thought like that. This, how he spoke, revealed the way he thought about himself. He thought about himself as divine. And here the Son of Man is like that. This is a divine 
being. Statements like that don't add up to Jesus just being a great moral teacher or some prophet. That doesn't fit. And this is evangelicalism's great contention with liberal theology that will say that he was just this divine person. We, we say, no, the words of Jesus doesn't fit with your description of who Jesus is as some prophetic moral teacher. He's much more than that. So this son of man phrase that he's using for himself is him identifying with his, this divine messianic fig, figure from ancient Prophecy, okay, that's one thing. But then he says, the Son of Man must suffer. At this point, again, you need to understand that Jesus is bringing two ideas together, together that have never been brought together before in all of history, truly. Never before has anyone in Israel connected the idea of suffering with the Messiah. Now, of course, we've got the prophecies of the suffering servant in Isaiah. Maybe you're thinking of that. And that's true, but no one before Jesus had ever put those texts about the suffering servant together with the idea of the Messiah. They thought they were two separate people, two separate ideas, okay? At this point in Peter's culture, the Messiah is supposed to eradicate evil through strength, through might, not through defeat, and not through suffering. It's through a, they think it's through a combination of divine help and military might and power, He's supposed to come and make everything right in the world again through his statesmanship, his military prowess, and all of those types of things. How in the world is the Messiah going to do all of that if he suffers and dies, if he's defeated? This made no sense. How is he going to defeat evil and all injustice if, the, if he's the one that's defeated? We've already been defeated as a nation, Peter would say. We are defeated. We're ready for a leader to come and lead us in triumph. That's what they want, and that's what the Messiah was in their minds. And that's why, again, Jesus was reluctant to take the title. In fact, this sounds so ridiculous and off. Peter's so shocked by this that he, he confronts Jesus about it. <clears throat> and by the way, I shouldn't even say, confront is an understatement. The word, the word rebuke in the Greek, by the way, is the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes demons. In fact, in the Greek language, this is the strongest term possible for rebuking somebody else. That's what Peter is doing to Jesus. And people say, well, Peter was really stupid to rebuke Jesus. And I say, well, yes, that's true, but it's more than that. From, from bouncing on, Peter bouncing on his mom's knee, he's been taught since he's been a little boy that the Messiah would come, go to Jerusalem, def take the throne of his father David, defeat all evil and injustice by sitting on David's throne. He's been taught that since he was a kid. And Jesus is basically saying, yes, Peter, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the king. Yes, I'm going to Jerusalem. Yes, I'm going to defeat all evil and all injustice. But I'm not going to sit on a throne. I'm going to hang on a cross. And that's where Peter went, Arr! that's where they all went, wait, what? That's not, that can't be your plan. The cross is where We are headed now in the second half of this gospel like we talked about. The cross is where we're going. And I'm, I think it's so beautiful how the timing is laid out that we're entering into Easter season and we're, we're heading towards Good Friday. We're heading toward the cross and we're heading toward Easter. It, it worked out so well 
in the Bible because here we are. Jesus is starting to set his, another gospel says he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. In other words, that he started to make his way there. The cross in that culture was the apex of weakness and shame. Every other form of execution gave per, the person dying more dignity than the cross. This form of execution, was, it was not invented by the Romans, but you can't, it, was, it was perfected by the Romans. It was the worst. Um, and it was for, the, for those Rome wanted to punish the most severely. In fact, by, by law, no Roman citizen could be crucified. This was, a, this was a death only for outsiders, only for the marginal. They had other ways of putting Roman citizens to death, but, this is, but that allowed them more dignity, but not the cross. On the cross, they were stripped naked. They were nailed out in, in the open for everyone to see. You die on the cross, you died of your own weakness because they would spread your arms out so far and nail you there and then they would raise the cross up and they would not gently put it in the hole that they dug, they would slam it into the hole that they dug. It would dislocate folks' shoulders so that their lungs collapsed in on itself. Their own weight was coming in on their own chest and the only way a crucified person could breathe was to push up on that nail, take a breath, and then the weight of their own body would, would force it out again. Slowly. That's how, that's how it went, until the person slowly died. So it was humiliating because they're there naked. The Romans encouraged crowds to jeer at the person and make fun of and shame the person that was being crucified, as we see in all four accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. It was this, it was, this was the epitome of saying, we're glad you're leaving. It was a loud message to that person. We're glad you're leaving. We're glad your life is ending. We're ridding the earth of you. And it was a message to anybody else that was passing by. Usually, as in the case of Jesus, they would nail the reason why that person was being crucified to the cross so that anyone else, even thinking about dissenting against the Roman government, might think again when they see that going on. Hours it would take for someone to die. Many times they would die by drowning because their lungs would fill up with fluid and they would drown literally in their own spit and mucus. In Jesus' case, you know, they had to break his legs to speed it up. Or, excuse me, in the, the thieves' case, they had to break their legs to, speed, their legs to speed it up. It's brutal. It's brutal. Brutal. And Jesus says, and that's how I'm going to defeat evil. Like that. This was the exact opposite of the throne that they were expecting Jesus to take. For us, the cross is, is it's a brand for Christianity. It, it means for us, it means hope, it means victory. It means all of those things. But back then, the cross was scandalous. It was, it was horrible. 
It was something that people didn't want to think about. They wanted to push them. In fact, it was so horrible that we can't find, even though we know it was common practice in the Roman government, we can't find many historic writings about details about the cross. In fact, I will tell you this, the four gospels are some of the most details writing about crucifixion that we can find in the ancient world. Because even, his, they didn't want to think about it. They preferred not to think, it was, it was uh, below the elite culture's dignity to think about that. Plus, the people that, were, that were, the cross was reserved for were nobodies. They thought it was doing them too much honor to even write about them. So the Gospels, we actually find some of the most detailed uh, stuff about the cross. Because Christianity, Christians came forward and said, this is now our king. Our king is someone who died. It was... It, it blew everyone's minds. No, you'd never see a religion until that moment that identified with a king who suffered. The son of man must suffer. This, you guys, this is that sentence, the son of man must suffer, that is Christianity. That is the power of Christianity and that, was, that is what makes it different, among other things, but one of the most impactful things that make it different than anything else. We have a king who suffered. Okay? Really important. And notice this really small but really powerful word, the word must. Must. Um, This word is so important that he uses it again at the end of the verse. He must suffer and he must be killed. And then later when he's talking about you and me, whoever wants to be my disciple, he uses it again, must take up their cross. Not will, not it's probably going to happen, it's inevitable, it must happen. It doesn't say that the Son of Man has come to suffer and die. No, he says the Son of Man must suffer. In other words, it's got to happen. There's no way around it. It's absolutely necessary that he suffers and dies. And then he's going to apply that to you and me. This is the second piece. The world um, can't be renewed, and I can't save you personally, Jesus is saying, unless I suffer and die. There is no redemption. There's no atonement for sin. Why would that be? Why was it, ex- why was it absolutely necessary for Jesus to suffer and die? Why was there no other way to get it done? And th- the answer to that, you guys, has been the thought, has been thought about and written about and talked about and debated for uh, like 20 centuries in the Christian church. And there's three answers in the Bible. I'll, I'll give you two answers in the Bible. Um, or in Christian theology, you might say, they answer this question, why, did Je- why was it absolutely necessary for Jesus to die? First, it was absolutely necessary for him to suffer and die legally speaking. This is a theological term. It's a, it's, it, there was a legal aspect to this. What I mean by that is there is no such thing in the universe as an offense that does not incur debt. That's very philosophical, I know, but I want to say it again, there, and, it, and I want to, hopefully I can prove it. There is no such thing in the universe, there's no offense in the universe that does not incur debt. There's no such thing as an offense that will not cost you something, okay? 
Um, and we get this, we can start really small with this. Let's just look at, look at it on the, on the human level. What if, someone, it, what, if, what if someone you're trying to talk to is not listening because they will not put down their phone? And in a fit of rage, you grab the phone out of their hand and just go into the ocean. And it feels really good in that moment. Or let's say somebody, you know, hurts your car and so you deflate the tires in their car. Okay. Let's go with the phone thing. Um, what happens? What happens is that somebody's got to incur that cost. I can forgive you. Let's say if you did it to me, you threw my phone. I can forgive you, but in order to forgive you, I've got to pay for that myself. I've either got to go out and buy a new phone or live with the cost of not having a phone, not having those things. Either way, it doesn't just go away and vanish into thin air. Okay. If I was to take a crowbar and just beat the snot out of your car and you catch me and you call the police and they come and I say, oh, I'm sorry. I don't know what came over me. And the, the police says, just forgive him. He's, he's really sorry. In order to forgive me, that means you're going to pay for it yourself. Either you're going to pay for the damage. That's, there's no such thing. So when, when preachers say from the pulpit, just forgive it can be really insulting unless that's unpacked. Because it makes it sound like, just go to the store, get a gallon of milk and 12 eggs and some forgiveness. And just forgive and you'll be, your problems will be solved. But anybody who's been really hurt, and I mean really hurt, like betrayed, let's take it up a notch. Um, let's say someone wrongs you by robbing you of an opportunity. Let's say someone wrongs you by robbing you of happiness or your purity. Someone robs you of your reputation. Let's, let's talk some real stuff here. Spread some lies about you. You know, really, really wronged you. There's a sense of debt to that. There's a sense of, I'm owed something for this. When someone takes something so precious to you that you'll never get it back, there's a, there's a sense that this person has to make it right. This person owes me something. Justice has been violated, and you can't just shrug it off. So when hurt people, especially people who aren't Christians or even Christians where a preacher doesn't properly unpack the idea of forgiveness, it can be downright insulting just to say, forgive. Because I'm in pain. I've lost something. And once you realize and sense that, that, uh, that there's a debt, there's really only two things you can do. One is you can try to make the person pay. Right? You can try to harm their opportunities. You can try to um, cause them suffering for, on their part because they made you suffer. You're going to make them suffer, that kind of an attitude. We see that in the world all the time. I'll start listening to them when they start listening to me. We hear that all the time. When are they going to start? You know, and it goes on and on and on and on. There's only one problem with that. The problem is that as you're making them pay up, as you're making them suffer and harming them because of what they did to you, the problem is you're becoming just like them. <laughs> you end up becoming like the person you hate. You're becoming harder, colder, more callous. You're becoming like the perpetrator. That's a problem. That's a real problem. That's what bitterness does. It's a big problem. So what else can you do? You can either make them pay or the other thing you can do is forgive. You can forgive them. Just forgive. But look, when you refuse, listen, think about this. Think about someone that's hurt you. 
Think about it all, because I know we're human. We live in a world of hurt. There's people that have deeply betrayed you. Bring them up in your mind right now. Think of that instance right now. When you refuse vengeful thoughts, though you want to have them so bad, and when you refuse vengeful actions, when you want to take them so much, it hurts, your, it hurts doesn't it? Oh, it? In me, it burns. I feel heat. Burns because of the un- injustice. It's agony. Why is it agony? You're suffering. You're suffering. Why are you suffering? Because you're absorbing the cost. I'm choosing not to get back at that person. You're absorbing the cost. Instead of making them suffer, you're absorbing the cost. And that's what forgiveness is all about. That's true forgiveness. It all, forgiveness always entails some kind of suffering. In fact, in the Bible, you will not try it. Look for places of forgiveness in the Bible. You will not be long before you run into the idea of suffering. They're like parked right next to each other, these two ideas. And when you look at suffering in the Bible, a lot of the time you will find some kind of redemption and some kind of forgiveness. And ironically, this is the only way you have of righting a wrong. See, a lot of people actually think that if they talk to a person and explain why they're hurt and tell them their feelings, that the person will go, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know. But that, you know that like never happens, rarely ever happens. That does it work out that way. It actually just keeps the retaliation cycle spinning. Ironically, only if you forgive and incur the suffering on yourself do you have any chance of becoming healed yourself. Now, if we know at our human level that forgiveness always entails suffering, how can we not apply that to God? What is the Bible about? The Bible is about humankind offending God. That's the great plot of the Bible. God made this world perfect. He made us in a a partnership with him, a covenant with him to live and to thrive in a relationship with him. And we violated an act of pride and selfishness. We violated the most pure, innocent, good-intentioned being in the universe. I know the thoughts I've thought toward you, said the Lord, thoughts of good. I've only wanted good for you, not of evil. We violated a person like that. The one with the purest intentions and the greatest desires for us. We violated that and that caused a rift in the world from everything that comes out of our hearts to every invasion going into any other country. It all goes back to that moment where mankind said, no, God, we'll do it our own way. Thank you very much. Now, Why couldn't God say, let there be light, let there be creatures, let there be people, let there be forgiveness? Because there is no such thing, even on a spiritual cosmic level, there is no such thing as an offense that does not cost, that does not incur debt. That's why Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer. The only way I can forgive the world, the only way I can redeem the world, the only way I can forgive anybody's sins, I must suffer. I must incur the cost myself on the cross. There is no other way out. And that's what makes the gospel such a beautiful story. Secondly, if Jesus had not died, love would not win. Um, One of the greatest things about being a Christian 
especially with the Russia-Ukraine thing that's happening, is that I've got, no matter how it unfolds, I've got all this hope that love is going to win in the end. Love will win, and we say that, but what do I mean by that? One belief that most people have in our culture and what we do have in common is the belief that love can solve the world's problems. You know, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Why can't we just love one another? Um, all we need is love. I'm quoting songs off my head. All we need is love. Yeah, it's all we've ever need, we will ever need. The idea, it's mostly reggae songs, the idea that love can heal all wounds. Um, why can't we just love one another? Here is why this system is flawed. This way of thinking is very flawed. Because we all need real love. Okay, we all need real love and we all instinctively know the difference between real love and fake love. Did you know that there's such a thing as fake love, inauthentic love, selfish love? Even if you grew up depraved of love, by the way, you intrinsically know the difference in your soul between authentic love and false love. In fake or false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your own happiness. That is fake love and people can sniff it a mile away. We can see it. So your affection and your love is, on the one hand, it's conditional. You do it as long as the other person is affirming and meeting your needs. That's the idea. It's an exchange. I'll do this if you do this for me. That's one kind of love. And it's not very vulnerable. It's not vulnerable love. It's very protected. You hold back just in case you need to cut your losses if necessary. You know, it's afraid of commitment, not vulnerable, that type of a thing. But in true love, God's kind of love, your aim is to spend yourself and to give yourself for the happiness of the other because their happiness has become your happiness. I'm happy if you are. Yeah, I love the, the greatest example of this, well, besides Jesus, but in literature, in my mind, is Dickens' book, The Tale of Two Cities. In, in, in that uh, the Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. In that book, there's a man who's in love with this woman, but she doesn't love him back. And he's just desperately in love with her, but she just isn't really attracted to him. She considers him a friend, kind of like a little brother type of a thing. Have you ever been in love with a girl and she's like, oh, you cute little guy? And it's torture. It's horrible. Um, that's what's going on. And she ends up marrying somebody else. And at the end of the book, I'm going to spoil it for you. At the end of the book, the husband, her husband, is, she's reading it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, get out, Tara. <laughs> I wish I would have known that. I could have picked a better example. <laughs> okay. At the end, you'll text her when I'm done. I'll make this quick. At the end of the book, don't tell Tara anybody. Nobody tell her. At the end of the book, her husband is, it's during the French Revolution, her husband's in the gallows in Paris. And because um, the, the guy that loved her that she doesn't love back, because he loves her so much, he sneaks in and switches places with her husband so that he can go out and be married to her and he dies. And the idea of Dickens' big idea is, I love her so much that even if it's not me, that gets to be with her. I want her to be happy, even if she's not happy with me. It's, it's just, and it's brilliantly written. Okay, she can come back now. <laughs> I was wondering why she just hightailed. I'm like, the bathroom's that way. Um, 
That's true love. And, you know, and therefore, what true love means is your affection is unconditional, not conditional. In other words, you give your affection regardless of if that person's meeting your needs or not. This is what makes Christian love so powerful. You give your affection and your affirmation regardless, and it's radically vulnerable. In other words, you spend everything, you give it all away, you hold nothing back, even when you're not getting back in return. It's, and it involves suffering. It's harder love, isn't it? It's, it, it? This love and suffering go hand in hand. It sounds so wonderful, but surprisingly, the bad news is that no one is actually able to fully give this kind of love. I mean, if, if everybody's honest in here, you've got to think to yourself, well, shoot, I can't give that kind of love. <laughs> You're good. I, yeah, I can't give that kind of love. Um, I think every married couple should be honest with themselves and know that, okay, agape love is something that I'm not capable of in and of my own self. You, you've got mixed motives in there. Of course you want to be safe. Of course there's those quid pro quos and all of those types of things. Um, and yet this is the dilemma. We also need it. So we can't give this kind of love and yet we desperately need this kind of love. This is the human dilemma. We need it. In fact, the Bible would say, and I think it's absolutely anthropologically true, we need this kind of love the way we need air and water. Please. Well, don't, don't talk. Wait, wait. Well, I'll tell you afterwards because... I don't want to give it away for Tara. Yeah, we'll, we'll get you afterwards there. It's a great book. Yeah, but um, yeah, I'll tell you afterwards. No, it's all good. Um, we need this love. We need authentic love, not fake love. We can't live without it. And therefore, there's a certain uh, kind of mercenary element to all of our relationships. We look for people that we think, if I got this person to love me and affirm me, then I'll be okay. <laughs> then they can give me this eternal kind of love that I so desperately need, and yet they can't. Yes, in a way. I, I'll love you if. And I don't think you can help that. I, think, I, I don't think you can, you can help that without the help of God. And yet we need it, and there's the dilemma. This is the problem with our marriages, I think. This is the problem with every marriage and every relationship face. So we invest our love only where we know we're going to get good love in return. But you see, when we do that, to some degree, your love is conditional and non-vulnerable to some degree. Because to some degree, you're not loving the person for his or her own self. You're loving that person because of what you can get out of it. To some degree. There's something in there that way. And that's what we're after. And we're all starving for it, so we're all, so what do we do? We're stuck. What we need is someone to get this thing going. We need someone to love that doesn't need us at all. Right? We need someone to love us radically, to love us unconditionally, to love us vulnerably, and yet doesn't need us one bit at all. Doesn't need us a bit, loves us completely for our sake. Who is capable of doing something like that? Yeah, it's Jesus. It's the Sunday school answer. Here's what all of this means. The Trinity, the Father, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, have all been knowing and loving each other for all of eternity. Do you know that? This is, Augustine brought this out. 
God did that. Before this, people thought, well, God made human beings because he needed someone to love. And he was lonely. Augustine said, that can't be right. That can't be right. Because God, as we see in, in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in, 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 his, in our own image. God is, in his essence, a plurality. He is one, and yet he is social. He is a, a plurality in his essence. He's not lonely. They, he's been, the Holy Spirit, the Son, the Father have been mysteriously, uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis calls it the great eternal dance, preferring one another over it, just rotating and preferring and moving around each other for all, for all of eternity. So why did he create us if he didn't need us one bit? Why is he redeeming us at great cost to himself in this gospel if he doesn't need us at all? He's doing it because he simply loves us. It, who he is, he's love. He wants our joy more than he wants his own joy. That's the story of the gospel. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. And that is perfect love. Perfect love. It's unconditional love. And it's radically vulnerable love. And that's what we see in Jesus. No, we don't see any other example like that in history. And when you are touched by that kind of love, you can actually start to love other people that way. When you are fulfilled by the love of Christ, by a perfect love, you don't have to get something from your spouse anymore. The more you realize that you are loved, no matter what they do, no matter what they decide, no matter what they believe, no matter all of those things, well, then you don't need to crane them over to your side anymore. You can let them be and you can let, amen, you can let your spouse breathe. You know how suffocating it can be? When someone else thinks that you are the key to their happiness, there's a lot of energy on you to pull you over into what they think you should be doing to make them happy. That's what we call, um, you know, codependence, enmeshment. But when I can say about Nicole, okay, look, I'm going to let you be you because I'm already fulfilled in Christ, then I can love her without condition. I can love her in her process. I can love her at an impasse. I can disagree agreeably. We can, we can keep coexisting because I don't need her to get it in order for me to feel okay. It's not mercenary at that point. It's free. And I can be vulnerable. I can admit my wrongs. There can be a culture of confession and forgiveness and all of those things because I know that, hey, I'm forgiven. And when you're touched by that, you can actually start to love others. And that's why Jesus said, I must suffer so that love can win. So that we can finally put an end to the cycle of hate. I'm going to make you pay back for this. We can put an end to it because love wins. See, other religions talk about love in general ways, but only Christianity ever claims that God has, has a love to, uh, for us like this, a vulnerable love, an unconditional love. Jesus had to die to be able to forgive legally, and he had to die so that love would win. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king, but not the kind of king that you would imagine, but the kind of king that changes, changes the world. That's why I'm not scared about Russia and Ukraine. I'm grieved absolutely grieved. I think we need to prepare. I certainly know that there's a threat, a threat to us, especially if we get pulled into this thing, if they go beyond Ukraine. 
Obviously, two nuclear powers going at each other is a scary thing. But I'm not, um, I, have, I, I honestly, truly feel confident and peace in my heart that love will win because it already did. True love will win. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king. He says, I'm not, I'm, I am not going to save the world. I'm not going to reconcile the world or redeem the world by, by going to a throne. <laughs> I'm going to go to a cross. The second thing he says is, I am the king. I'm going to a cross. And this is what it means for, for Christians. So, he is an example. He is an example and I want to say this, not just the way he lived, but the way he redeemed the world is the way that redemption continues to move. This is very, 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 very important. This is not only the way we were saved. This is the evangelical model for the, for, in the Bible for how we continue bringing people into the kingdom. It's not necessarily through us going out and filling a stadium filled of people and preaching a, a stirring message and having them come forward and receiving Christ. Those are, that's fine. That's great. But the primary, most powerful way that Christianity is to change a place like Seattle or the world is through us living what scholars call a cruciform life. Cruciformity. Which means... I receive the power of the resurrection so that I can continue dying to myself, so that I can receive the power of the resurrection, so I can t continue dying to myself. That's what, that's what it, this is a way of life for Christianity. And historically, this is how Christianity did change the world. It wasn't through mass events and itinerant speaking. That was part of it. But Christianity changed the world through massive and radical kinds of self-denial for the sake of neighbor, for the sake of society, and for the sake of others. Radical generosity, <clears throat> radical giving at cost to oneself. That is the definition of justice in the Old Testament. <clears throat> the word is sadaka mishpah. We talked about this. It is giving at cost to yourself. Not when you happen to have some extra. <clears throat> It's a trading position with somebody else. We've talked about that before. It's worth saying again. It means I'm going to, you and I are both hungry. I have one meal. <clears throat> We're going to trade places. I'm going to give you my meal so you know what it means to have a full belly. And I know what it feels to be like you and not have a meal. That's redemptive giving. It's not equality or fairness. That's not what it is. Fairness as great as that is, is not the kind of power that can change the world. It's a giving at cost to ourself. That is at the heart of Christianity. That's at the heart of who Jesus is. He didn't just give because, well, I got extra up here in heaven. I'll just give to the world. He gave. It cost him something. He was drained. When he, and he showed this in his ministry. When he's walking through the crowd and people are, are pressing in on him and that woman touches the hem of his garment, he feels that power has left him. Who touched me? Power has gone out of me. And we scratch our heads and go, how's that possible? If he's all powerful, how can... you're missing the point. The point is, in order to redeem the world, he had to lose. And he's saying, if and then he says this, if you want to be my disciples, if anyone wants to come follow me, this is at the turning point of the book, 
You know who I am now, people. Eight chapters. You now know who I am. If you want to follow me, this is what Christians were called before Christians were. They were called followers. If you want to follow me, you must, same word, must, not you will inevitably, or if you really want to be effective and go and level up, then you probably should. No, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. You cannot divorce this lifestyle from Christianity. That's my point. It's like what C.S. Lewis said, or no, it wasn't C.S. Lewis, it was Jane Austen. And I can't remember which book it is, but someone's complaining about what a ball is. You know, this, these, these aristocrats are complaining about balls. You know, balls are, in the old times when aristocrats would get together and do these weird dances. Like they were parties, but they were like, you know, it was weird. Now we do all sorts of horrible things. But anyways, um, and at one point, they say, well, if they start taking, well, let's do this for a ball. And let's change it this way. And they're playing with the idea of a ball. What if we had a ball that was like this? What if we had a ball like this? And at one point, they, they, they get so far that someone says, well, if we did that, then we couldn't call it a ball anymore. In other words, it loses its definition. This is one of those things for Christianity. Following Jesus in a, in a way that's cruciform, you take that out of Christianity, it ceases to be Christianity at that point. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Because of the word must, Jesus said, you must do this. If you want to follow me, if you want to call yourself a follower and actually do it, then you're signing up for a life of following me. Specifically, he doesn't say in my moral teachings. He doesn't say in how I heal people. He says, he gets specific, take up your cross and follow me. Now, what does that even mean? It's so cryptic. What does that even mean? Um, I'll unpack it for you really quickly because I know, oh, good night. I'm sorry, you guys. I'm sorry. It's two o'clock. It's two o'clock. <laughs> good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Okay, let me, let me, uh, let me button this up. Hmm, darn it. Okay. What does this mean? Let me just say this. The word life. There's a couple words for life in the Greek. One is zoe. It means abundant, um, full life, life to the full. This is not that word. It uses the word psyche. It's talking about your personhood. It's, talk, it's an identity word. It's talking about your identity. If you want to give, it says, for whoever wants to save their psyche will lose it, their identity. Whoever wants to save their identity, their personhood will lose it. And whoever loses their psyche, their life, their identity, their personhood for the gospel will save it. What is he saying here? He's saying not to build your identity here on the things of this earth. Since I have to get to the punchline really quick. Verse 36 proves it. Let me show you. Verse 36. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? And what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Here's what he's, saying, what he's talking about. Every culture points to certain things. Our culture, every culture points to certain things and they say, if you gain these things, then you'll be a person. Then you can feel good about yourself. Then you can deem yourself successful. Every culture has things for that. If you're in a uh, collective family type of a, of a culture, you're nobody unless you have family and children. Okay? 
If you're in an individualistic culture like Seattle, you're nobody unless you gain career, uh, prestige, uh, reputation, uniqueness, all of those types of things. That's what it means. And Jesus is saying, it's a complete dead end. It'll never work. If you try to get your psyche, yourself, your personhood by gaining and achieving, it's all, what they all, all cultures have in common, it's this gain and achieve type of an idea. If you gain and achieve some status or by do this or do what's expected of you or get the old Soviet Union back. I mean, wars are fought over what I think I need to have, my legacy, my idea, me. Jesus says it's a complete dead end. You'll lose your soul. You'll lose your humanity. You'll actually lose it. Jesus is saying even if you gain the world, you still won't have a a self. You still won't have an identity. And that's what he's saying. Think about this. No matter how much of these things you gain, it's never really enough, is it? We always want more. And if anything threatens those things, we start falling apart. Now you're beginning to see how radical Jesus is. He's not saying, I want you to shift from one gain-based, from one gain-based performance-based identity to another. See, here, here's my final point. If we think as Christians, if this is what we think, man, I failed, I'm such a bad person, so I know what I do, I'll do. I'll start going to church, and I'm gonna read my Bible, and I'm gonna become a moral, decent person. Do you see what you're doing? You're just trading one system of achievement for another that's not what christianity is that's not what it is jesus is saying that he doesn't want you to shift from one to another he wants you to completely lose your old self a completely new playing field where achievement is not it's been achieved for you you're resting in it lose the old identity in favor of basing yourself on the identity of jesus and the gospel free grace salvation that's what the gospel is all about. It's not just something, I'm an American, I'm also a Christian, I'm also these other things. It is the thing. This is where I find my sense of peace, not in something I achieved, but something I received. That's so important. I'm gonna read this from C.S. Lewis to end it. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way... (laughs) The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. I love it. It's C.S. Lewis, right? Our, Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and drives. Without him, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop. Most of what I call me, quote unquote, can be very easily explained by my physical drives or by what others have said or done to me. It is only when I turn to Christ when I give myself up to his personality that I find myself begin, uh, that I finally begin to have a real personality of my own. (laughs) Nevertheless, you must not go to Christ for the sake of a new self. As long as it is is your own self that you are concentrating on, you have really, uh, on, you have really begun to go to him. Go to Jesus for who you are. 
And that will allow you to live a cruciform kind of a life. And that's the only way that we're going to change. That 12 people, the disciples, they went out like, and the world began to change. We have more than that right here. There is power in this room, but it's not going to be through, you know, smoke machines and lights and incredible music and all of these types of things. Those things are all great, but what really changes a life is when people like you and me live a life by the power of God's Spirit. It's the only way we can do it. We can't do it on our own. By the power of God's Spirit are allowed to die to ourselves because we've found our true self in Christ. Christ. 